So, hey, good to be back with you. We are back in Acts. So if you got your Bible with you, turn open to Acts chapter 11, and we're going to finish up this chapter. Last time we were together, we were in Acts 11, 1 through 18, and today we'll be in verses 19 to the end of the chapter. You know, whenever you're out and away from your church, just makes me love you guys more. It's good to travel, it's good to be in other places with other saints, but I'm always longing to be right back here at home at Placerita. So again, just so great to be back with you, to see your smiling faces this morning, and uh, thanks for allowing me to preach to you yet another sermon from Acts. The title of the message this morning is The Planting of the Antioch Church. The Planting of the Antioch Church, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 again to the end of the chapter. Now those who were scattered... Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord." The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Dear Lord, we're so grateful to be back in your word this morning as we look at it and read it and meditate on it, hopefully day and night. But we're thankful to worship corporately, both by singing and by the preaching of the word. And I pray that we would be expository listeners this morning, to listen carefully to all that your word has to say as we're reading the narrative and now the beginning of the church of Antioch, pray that we would be greatly encouraged. I pray that there would be timeless truths that we would see in this text this morning that would bring us encouragement and challenge to be a faithful church, living by the Spirit, evangelizing the lost, and being a light in the midst of a dark world. Help us to learn what you want us to learn and live it out this week, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. How do you plant a church? Today, there are all kinds of thoughts and ideas on the matter. You can go to conferences and training seminars around the country and learn all kinds of innovative ideas of how to plant a church. You can read books about it and articles about church planting. You can even have Q&As with church planting gurus in order to glean wisdom from their experiences. There are all kinds of ideas out there on how to plant a church. I recently read an article about this from Christianity Today about some popular tips for church planting. And the writer of the article polled those that have, that have been really deemed as the most successful church plants here in the last five years. And here are some of the top answers of this question. What are some healthy tips for planning a church? Here are a few of those answers. The first one was to sustain high learning agility. Sustain high learning agility. The point of this concept is to be agile. A church must be willing to adapt. Many church planners are not willing to have a high learning agility. Some church planners are so enamored with a particular ministry model or idea that when it does not work in the real world, they get embarrassed or defensive and discouraged. The interviewee went on to say that every stage or initiative, veteran coaches should be available to make adoption and growth possible both for you and your church. Another tip for church planning says, go slow in order to go fast. 
This interviewee said that church planting is this vulnerable, exciting space where something is supposed to come out of nothing. He emphasizes the importance of a church building team where everyone contributes their own ideas and their efforts. Once you have a community of people in place, you have an entire team with gifts and with energy that take the church much farther than you could on your own. Another idea was to gather a launch team instead of a core group. This interviewee said that a typical church plant core group can be like a close-knit board meeting made up of leaders who make executive decisions. A launch team, however, is more like an ever-expanding party. This is where there is a winsome urgency to gather others to take risks and to be creative together. Yet another tip about church planning was make sure to find the right worship space. This church planner said that the worship space is hugely influential to the development of your church and finding the right venue can be as much of a spiritual battle as it is a logistical one. Another church planner said, don't be afraid to ask for money and people. This church planting pastor said not to be afraid to ask other senior pastors in the area for money and for people. He deconstructed the common association of meager resources with spiritual purity or greater faith. Having the resources of people and money makes church planting possible, not easy or not easier. People and money are like oxygen, he said. They are the two essential components for your church to stay alive and thrive. Well, (laughs) the problem with all of these five suggestions of how to church plant is that none of them talk about the philosophy of preaching the Bible and teaching your people and shepherding the flock. None of them talked about having a solid doctrinal statement. None of them talked about evangelism or discipleship. None of them discussed their philosophy of ministry. And while I am sure that all of these pastors have thought through these things to some degree, none of that came up when they were asked about tips of planting a church. I like Paul Washer's approach to church planting. I heard him say at a shepherd's conference a few years back, His definition of what church planning would be would be this. He just simply said, quote, you plant a church the same way you pastor one. When he said that, I thought, well, that's overly simplistic. And then he went on just to talk about it. You plant a church the same way you pastor one. How do you pastor a church? You preach the word and you shepherd the flock And you evangelize and you disciple and you encourage and you edify from the word of God, right? You instruct and admonish others all from the scripture. You build godly leaders in ministry. You do what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and with teaching. You do what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3, You shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. How do you plant a church? You do what Paul said to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 4.12, you equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And what we're seeing in our text today, here in Acts 11, is a church plant. It is safe to say that the church of Jerusalem has fully been planted, and now this is the second clear church being planted in the New Testament. And this church is not being planted in Israel, but outside of Israel in a Gentile city named Antioch. And so this morning, we're going to see how the apostles, with the the apostles' approval, Barnabas plants this church together with Saul of Tarsus. This morning, I want you to see three headings that describe this biblical church planning effort. Number one, we'll look at effective evangelism in verses 19 through 21. Number two, dynamic discipleship, verses 22 through 26. And then number three, it has a mercy ministry, verses 27 through 30. 
Let's start with number one, effective evangelism. If you're taking notes this morning, that first blank says scattering with a limited scope. Verse 19, scattering with a limited scope. Now, there, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word, notice the last part of verse 19, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So here we see there is a limited scope to the ones in verse 19 as they spread themselves out beyond Jerusalem. In some ways, this verse takes us back to what happened to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen preached the gospel. He also confronted the Jews and said in his sermon in Acts 17, or excuse me, Acts 7, verses 51 through 53, you remember Stephen confronted the Jews and he said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so did you, so do you. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Well, for this reason, the Jews stoned Stephen to death. And Stephen became the first martyr of the New Testament. And then we read, after that happened in Acts 7, in Acts 8, verses 1 through 3, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now there were those who were scattered. They went about preaching the word. In the rest of chapter 8 of the book of Acts, we saw how Philip, the evangelist, went up to Samaria and he preached the gospel and witnessed a great work of God, both in miracles and in the saving of the lost. The second half of Acts chapter 8 was about how Philip then evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch and how he came to Christ and was baptized on the road to Gaza. Then we entered into Acts chapter 9 that tells the extraordinary conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. And toward the end of Acts 9, the preaching of the gospel was fearlessly going forth in Damascus, Arabia, in Jerusalem, and then Saul was sent back to Tarsus for his adversaries were seeking to kill him. Then we moved into Acts chapter 10. We read about the glorious conversion of Cornelius, the centurion, who became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And last time, three weeks ago, when we were in this text, in the first 18 verses of chapter 11, Peter explained to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem how exactly God had added Cornelius, a Gentile believer, into the fold. Peter explained, he went to great length to recite what happened again in Acts 10, that God miraculously saved Jews there in, uh, in Caesarea. So now we're seeing it all put together. God miraculously saved Jews in Jerusalem, Acts 2 at Pentecost, Samaritans in Samaria, Acts 8, there with Philip, and now Gentiles in Caesarea, Acts chapter 10, when Peter witnessed to Cornelius. And so the Holy Spirit also fell on all three groups they were all baptized, and the unity of the church was centered on the gospel and on the fact that the Holy Spirit was regenerating believers and filling them with power. Here we are now in verse 19. The scattering of the believers all spawned out initially from Acts 7. So it's like he's going back to what happened in Acts 7 when the initial scattering went forth, and now he's talking about what was happening as there are now the scattering of believers has spread as far as, verse 19, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So Phoenicia was to the northeast of Israel on the coastline that included the ports of Tyre and Sidon. This is present-day Lebanon. Cyprus, a large island in the northeast Mediterranean Sea, is where some of the believers went. And then we have Antioch, which is the point of our sermon this morning, how this church in Antioch was planted. It was a large city in Syria to the north of Israel. And so now this first subpoint, where it again says scattering with a limited scope, I am saying that because of what we read at the end of verse 19, where those scattered in this verse were speaking the word to no one except 
the Jews. Maybe they had not yet fully heard and processed Peter's message to the Jerusalem believers earlier in the same chapters, verses 4 through 17, when Peter's saying, hey guys, the gospel's gone beyond Judaism, beyond Jerusalem. It's gone now to these Gentile cities, and these brothers are coming to faith, being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're being baptized. Who in the world am I to deny the fact that they are now genuine believers? That's where we ended last time we were together. But maybe some of these believers that had been scattered, they didn't hear Peter's report in Jerusalem, and so they were still somewhat prejudiced against the Gentiles in Antioch. Maybe they just really wanted to evangelize the Jews who lived in Antioch since they had a similar background. Maybe it was just more comfortable for them to preach to people with their own language and culture. We don't really know their motive. We just simply know that they limited themselves, not only to speaking uh, the word, uh, but only speaking the word to the Jews. Well, I hope that just when you read that, something about it is just like, well, wait a second. I understand it's the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Greek, but it seems like they were specifically saying, we're not going to talk to anybody except our people. And I hope that what we would learn from that is that we would be willing to share the gospel with anybody of any ethnicity of any culture, from any country, who speaks any language, all to the glory of God. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves slipping into the same habit that we would only want to share the gospel with people who look like us, who talk like us, who smell like us, who live like us, who cheer for the same ball team. And we know what team that is, right? All right, let's not get into any fights this morning. But the problem is, you tend to only share with people that you like. And it's just a reminder this morning that we're to share the gospel with all people. Would you be willing to share the gospel with those who you are unfamiliar with? To a stranger, to somebody in a different neighborhood, of a different socio-ethnicity. Would you be willing to share the gospel only when it's easy? Or are you willing to share the gospel when it's hard? Well, I'm thankful that in verse 20, we see how the scope begins to broaden. Your next blank says scattering with a broader scope. Look at verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Well, I hope that our church would take a Take a, take a page from verse 20 here from the believers of Cyprus and Cyrene. They were willing to go outside of just Jewish people to the Hellenists. And this is a reference to Christians, again, who have been scattered. These, these particular Christians have no limitation. They have a much broader scope. They were willing to share the word not only with the Jews, but with the Hellenists excuse me, the Hellenist also. Remember, Hellenist is just a reference to the Greek culture, and it refers to those who lived by Greek customs. Presumably, this group could include Hellenistic Jews. It could also include Hellenistic Gentiles. The point is, there was no partiality. There was no distinction. They just wanted to get the gospel out to as many people as possible. Who are these people? Well, it says that these are the evangelists from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus, again, is the island nation about 100 miles off the coast, and Cyrene was an area in northern Africa. It is possible that there were refugees from these two countries, Cyrene and from Cyprus, who were now living in Antioch because Antioch is a very metropolitan city. Why they came, we don't know exactly, but we do know that they came. And they came with fearlessness. They came with boldness. They came with a mission. These men were mavericks. They had a daring and courageous spirit about them. They had come, verse 20 says, to preach the Lord Jesus. This word preach is the word to evangelize. It is the word that means to proclaim the good news. It is the same word that was used in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, when it says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. 
And so this has to remind us also of what Paul's going to write later to the church or to some of the believers there in Athens, Greece, as he's evangelizing them in that famous sermon on Mars Hill. Paul, at the end of that sermon, says in Acts 17.30, the times of the ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people, certainly included the people of Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, and then there was Antioch. And here in the book of Acts, we will learn that Antioch became a launching pad for worldwide missions. It became the base of operations for Paul's missionary journey with Barnabas and later a base for his journey with Silas. Antioch was a city of around a half a million people. It bore the nickname, the Queen of the East. It was a cosmopolitan city and a commercial hub. It was the capital of Syria. And it was also a base for the Roman military. Antioch was located about 300 miles north of Jerusalem and 30 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. It was also on the shores of the Orontes River in what is now southeast Turkey. The city served as a crossroads, having major highways going north to south and east to west. Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, Indians, and Asians all populated Antioch, making it remarkably diverse. Religiously, Antioch was a pluralistic society and was idolatrous. Some called Antioch the abode of the gods, since several Greek deities were worshipped there, including Zeus, Apollos, Poseidon, Adonis, and Tyche. Within five miles of Antioch, there was the city of Daphne, which was known for its worship of Artemis, Apollos, and Astarte. Well, what a great place to plant a church, right? You can go rural into the small towns, or you can go to the big city, and some of these that were scattered said, you know what, we're going to go take the gospel to Antioch. What, what a great place to get a foothold into the Gentile world, and what a great place to share with others about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in many ways, get this, it was the church in Antioch, not the mother church in Jerusalem, that changed the world. The Jerusalem church was wonderful, and it should be appreciated for its uniqueness, power, and special place in Christ's kingdom, but it also had its challenges, especially when it came to evangelizing non-Jews. Antioch, by contrast, was an international church. And so what can we learn today from the church of Antioch? I hope that we can learn to have our finger on the pulse of Santa Clarita, but also to have our eye on the rest of the world. I hope that we could seek to evangelize those who live right here in our area with the widest lens possible and at the same time have our telescope on certain places in the world. I mean, think about it. God's blessed Placerita Bible Church to be able to reach not only places here in our community, but to support missionaries who have been launched from this church who today serve in Brazil. They serve in Romania, Uganda, Albania, Fiji, Slovenia, India, and Dubai. We've supported other missionaries who are now retired, who have served in Spain and served in South America and served in Germany. Our goal is to preach the gospel anywhere, anytime, in word and in deed. And so may God help our endeavor to exalt Christ in every area of the world so much as he blesses us with that opportunity. And by the way, please note as well in verse 20, it just says some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene. If you've ever wondered whether unnamed Christians here in verse 20 really make a difference for the kingdom, the answer is yes. These men were just being faithful to Jesus. They had no name listed in the Bible. They had no plan. They had no program. They had no budget. They had no building. Just a zeal for the Lord. And God worked through them in a mighty way. That leads us to verse 21. Scattering with the Lord's blessings. Scattering with the Lord's blessings, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord 
can be seen in the Bible, both in context of judgment as well as in context of blessing. This simply just means that God's presence was with them, and in this context, it's obviously a blessing as he was with them as they are evangelizing. God showed his favor as they were preaching about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God was granting a special transformation in the hearts of those who were turning from darkness to light. In fact, verse 21 says, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Please note that the hand of the Lord Jesus is at work, both in helping people believe and in helping people turn. The word for believed here is the same word for faith, pistos, and in order for saving faith to have its work in you, it must be granted from above. Faith like this, saving faith, opens your eyes and convicts you of your sin and regenerates your heart. Faith like this, this saving faith, believes in the entire person and work of Jesus Christ. Faith like this believes in Christ's incarnation, in his virgin birth, in his sinless perfection, and in all of his teaching and miracles. Faith like this believes that Jesus lived a perfect life, believes fully in the crucifixion, that Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners, and that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Faith like this believes in the ascension and in the ongoing reigning of Christ at the session as he's interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. Faith like this believes that Jesus will come back for his own. Faith like this is described in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. This is the kind of faith that we read about in 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This is the kind of faith that we read about in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed or had faith in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the same faith that was granted to the believers there in Antioch. The same belief of these Antioch Christians are coming, uh, are turning to the Lord is shown in Acts eleven twenty one, the verse that we're looking at. And this verse also says that they turned to the Lord. Notice it says they believed and they turned. This is the blessed doctrine of there's conversion, but there's also repentance. There is salvation, but with that comes a repentance, and there's this turning, this, this communicating the concept of repentance. There's a change in direction. There is a, a turning around. There is a change in belief, which leads to a different course of conduct. Please note, there are some Christians today who would teach that you can become a Christian simply by believing. That repentance is not an act of conversion. That repentance is not required for salvation. That bearing fruit is not a part of the Christian life. There are people who would teach that, mostly who end up in what's called a non-lordship camp of salvation. But all through the scripture, it's really simple. The Bible teaches you're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. And when someone's truly born again, not only is that faith given to them to believe in the gospel, but now they have a new heart They've been transformed. And as you've been transformed, you begin to turn. You begin to change. There's a difference in you. And the Bible talks about this here with this phrase of being turning. There's not a casual Christianity. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an I'm all in type of Christianity. We're not talking about a carnal Christianity. We're talking about I'm putting my sin off and I'm turning to Christ type of Christianity. This idea of turning is the, the same word is used in Acts 9.35, where we read that all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Well, let me ask you this morning, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart? If so, have you turned from your sin and have you turned to walking in a life of obedience? Are you living a lifestyle of repentance? Are you changing day by day? There's that initial change on the day that God saves you, but then throughout the course of your life, there's that constant 
turning, turning back to Christ, turning back to him over and over again in every area of your life. The church of Antioch here was planted with this kind of teaching, with this kind of understanding, that there's a belief and there's a change in you. It's not just accepting Jesus into their pluralism. It's saying, no, when I come to saving faith in Christ, it means everything about me changes. I do an about face. I give up my sin. I give up my idolatry. And I turn to Christ and I say, Jesus, I need your help. I need your grace. I need you to keep changing me and keep transforming me. I don't want to be stuck in the mud anymore. Is that where you're at in your life? Because that's what effective evangelism is calling people to. Effective evangelism isn't made from gimmicks. Effective evangelism isn't just an outward profession. Effective evangelism gets at the heart and watches the hand of the Lord as he brings his favor and his grace upon a darkened soul and he makes it alive. That's what we're talking about is happening in Antioch. Well, now that we've seen this first tip, if you will, church planting, effective evangelism, let's look at number two, a dynamic discipleship. A dynamic discipleship, verses 22 through 23, that next, those next couple blanks say the investigation and the affirmation of Barnabas. Look at verses 22 through 23. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Again, we've been talking about, you remember that when they got word back to Jerusalem that Philip had been preaching the gospel and many people were coming to Christ in Samaria. You remember the church of Jerusalem sent out Peter and John to make sure that the gospel had indeed gone forth. And this was to affirm that the same gospel that had been at work in Jerusalem was the same gospel that had now gone forth and had its work in Samaria. And similarly, When word got back to Jerusalem that Cornelius and his household had been saved, the fellowship in Jerusalem wanted to hear directly from Peter what happened. Now the church dispatches Barnabas to assess the situation in Antioch. And while Barnabas was not an apostle, he did work closely with the apostles and he had earned their respect and their trust. Besides, Barnabas was the perfect candidate. We have seen Barnabas at several key points here in the book of Acts. He was from Cyprus, so he was also a Hellenistic Jew who would have been able to relate well to the Greek culture in Antioch. Barnabas was also referred to as a son of encouragement, so he just must have had that that likable, reliable, friendly demeanor that he was able to interact with others with. And Barnabas was also generous, as earlier we read that he had sold a field that belonged to him, and he had laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was also the one who had befriended Saul shortly after his conversion. When no one else wanted to accept him into their fellowship, they were still afraid. And it was in Acts 9.27 that we read, but Barnabas took him, that's Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus." And so here we have Barnabas again being sent to Antioch to help out with this incredible work of God. Barnabas went to Antioch and he saw the grace of God at work. What was happening in Antioch was not a work of man. It was a true work of God. People were indeed being saved. The gospel was being preached. Lives were being transformed. So no wonder the verse here in 22 says that Barnabas was glad, right? He was glad, verse 23, when he saw what was happening. He was ecstatic. We see in the second half of verse 23, Barnabas exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The word here, exhort, means to urge strongly. It means to appeal to. It means to encourage This is who Barnabas was. This is what Barnabas did. He wasn't just a cheerleader in a superficial kind of way. He was exhorting believers in Antioch to remain faithful to the Lord. He didn't want the new believers to waver. 
He didn't want them to fall into besetting sins. He didn't want them to return to their former lives. And surely he must have reminded them of truths like what we read in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Certainly, Barnabas would have been including thoughts like that in his exhortation and his encouragement. He may have even exhorted them with truths like what we read in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He thus set them aside, nailing it to the cross. So Barnabas preached the gospel, and then he continued to preach the gospel, saying, because of that truth, you're now new. You've now been changed. You now have a new purpose, a new direction. They were to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfastness. Their purpose was now to work for God. They were to use all of their time, all of their treasure, and all of their talent to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God's calling us to. All of our time all of our talent, all of our treasure to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance that we would walk in them. And so here we're seeing Barnabas's assessment and his affirmation of this fresh work of God going on in Antioch. And then we see Luke The author of Acts pointing out in your next couple of blanks in verse 24, the character of Barnabas and fruit of the church. For he was a good man, talking about Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So we see part of the dynamic discipleship is that the church in Jerusalem sent one of their very best. They sent this second generation leader, Barnabas, to go, and he was a good man. The word good here means meeting a very high standard. It means to be useful or beneficial. Barnabas was also full, the verse says, of the Holy Spirit and of faith. The same thing was said about Stephen back in Acts 6, verse 5, where we read, and they were pleased, what pleased the whole gathering, that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. And Barnabas's goodness was a fruit of the fullness of the Spirit and faith at work in him. His acts of encouragement flowed from his intimate relationship with God. Don't ever think too lightly of encouragement. All of us as Christians need to be encouraged. All of us need to be encouragers. And the only way that you can be an encourager is by you yourself spending time with Jesus. The person who's overflowing with joy and blessings and encouragement is always thinking about others and not thinking about themselves. That's who Barnabas was. And the saints needed it back then and they need it still today. Encouragement is not just a personality trait. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is produced by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.13, But exhort or encourage one another every day. How many of you need encouragement today? How many of you are going to need it tomorrow and on Tuesday and Wednesday? We're to encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When we as Christians are going alone by ourselves, away from others, and we're not receiving constant mutual love and encouragement, we tend to stray. We tend to be deceived. We tend to fall back into our old ways. And so what we need to be is we need to be encouraged and we need to be encouragers. And what does a good disciple maker need? Sound theology? Yes. But he or she also needs to be an encourager. 
Discipleship makers should be known for stirring others up toward love and good deeds, Hebrews 10, 24. They need to care for the hearts of the people as well as helping them know the truths from the scripture. Consider how other believers see you. In light of this, are you more of one of the doctrine, doctrine, you got to know the truth, or are you one of those encourages, encouragers? And I'm saying you better be both, right? You can't just be walking around like, oh, girl, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you on that. That's, that's some encouragement, but you also need to say, hey, girl, you better watch out. You better shape up because the Bible says, right, you need to be both of those, right? We need to be those who hammer out the truth and that we love people and we just walk with them and we listen to them, and we look at them, and we spend time with them, and we feel what they're feeling, and we consider how, how we can be that way. I mean, just think about yourself. When other people see you, when they see you at this church, are they more likely, when they encounter you, to say, yes, speak to me. I like that person. Or are they like, oh no, here she comes. Here he comes. I am about to get an earful of how awful their week was. Which one are you? All you got to do is, are people flocking to you or are they running from you? Ooh, that hurts a little bit, doesn't it? Are they flocking to you or are they running from you? What kind of person are you? Are you an encourager? Now listen to me, even just because you're going through trials, not saying be fake and phony. There are no fake and phony Christians at this church. We don't allow it. They're not welcome here, right? Got to be genuine. So what I'm saying is if you're going through a trial, you can say, you know what? I had a really tough week, but you know what? God is so good, and he's ministering to my soul, and he's reminding me that heaven is my home. Now it's like, man, I want to be next to that person because I identify with the reality of what a hard week is like, but I also am blessed by their faith that's concrete in truth and now somehow encouraging me with what they're going through. Make it your daily aim to encourage others to help them persevere in the faith, to love them both with truth and with heart. Then we see in verses 25 through 26, the need for more help and teaching ministry. The need for more help and the teaching ministry, verses 25 through 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Well, at this point, Barnabas knew he needed more help. Antioch is a big city. There's a whole lot of people getting saved. And he just assesses the situation. And he's like, I can't do this alone. The church in Antioch was exploding. And there was a lot of discipleship needs for these new believers. Who could he get to help him? Oh, yeah. Remember that guy Saul? Whatever happened to him? Well, some commentaries say that by this point in time, Saul would have been a Christian for 10 years. He was a Christian for about three years until the disciples sent him off to Tarsus back in Acts chapter 9, verse 30. So now another seven years have passed. And what had happened to Saul was that Saul was sent back home. And what he'd been doing all that time, well, he wasn't just sitting around doing nothing. He was busy. In fact, the verb form when it says that Barnabas was looking for Saul is in the active voice giving us the idea that it might have taken some time for Barnabas to actually find Saul. In fact, this may even suggest a laborious search on Barnabas's part. It's also very likely that some of the hardships and sufferings and persecutions that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 27 took place while Saul was actively ministering in Tarsus. This may also be where Paul had the revelation described in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. You can read those cross-references later. And based on Acts 22, 17 through 21, something that Saul was already ministering to Gentiles when Barnabas pursued him to bring him to Antioch. The important thing is that Barnabas found Saul and brought him to Antioch. And what he did, verse 26 says, look at it, verse 26, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Saul did not come to Antioch to play games. 
He didn't come to take surveys of what the people thought they needed in their church. He didn't bring a circus. He didn't sit around and interview a bunch of celebrities about what they thought about spiritual things. He didn't discuss how bad the Roman Empire had been to the different provinces. He didn't set up camel races. He didn't have gladiators fighting in the ring. He came and he and Barnabas taught the Bible for a whole year. Now remember when I asked you, how do you plant a church? And I said, from Paul Washer, you plant a church the same way you pastor one. That's all Paul did. He just shows up and he just starts teaching. He shows up, he teaches and he preaches. And we can assume with the encouragement and with the shepherding that was all happening. I love what John MacArthur says about this. If you've ever sat under his ministry, I'm sure you've heard him say this many times. He says, whatever brings people to church is what will keep them there. Whatever brings them to church is what will keep them there. So if you bring people with a horse and pony show, you have to keep doing horse and pony shows to get people to show up to your church. But if you bring them with the solid teaching and preaching from the word of God, and they get a steady diet of the living word, then they'll keep coming back because they want more of that. They want to hear the word. They want to hear consistency from the pulpit. It's kind of like a, a good restaurant is consistent. Anybody in here like Cheesecake Factory? Any Cheesecake Factory fans? Put your hand, we're in church, people. Put your hands down. <laughs> Why do you like Cheesecake Factory? Because they are consistent. You can go and order whatever you want off the menu, your favorite dish, and it will always be delicious. And if you came back and one day it was this, and one day it was that, and one day it was good, and one day it was no good. Those are the kind of restaurants that go out of business. But if you keep selling the right stuff at a restaurant, people keep coming to buy it. You keep preaching the gospel from a church with quality and with precision and in truth and in love. Hopefully, true Christians want more of that. That's what they want. They want a full meal. One other Interesting thing about verse 26, there at the end of it, it says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The term means belonging to the party of Christ. That's what Christians means, belonging to the party of Christ. The term was often used initially in a derogatory way. In fact, the word Christian, you'll only find it three times in the Bible. Here, and in two other places, one of them is negative, one is positive. In a negative sense, it was in, in uh, Acts chapter 26, verse 28, when King Agrippa mocks Paul for trying to evangelize him. And Agrippa said to Paul, Acts 26, 28, in such a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? So it was used in a derogatory way. It's used in a positive way. In 1 Peter 4.16, the term Christian is used is soberly. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, in that text, it's an honor to be a Christian. It's an honor to be identified as a Christ follower. It's an honor to suffer together with Christ. And in today's world, being a Christian is only going to get harder and harder. In today's world, being a true Christian who believes in the gospel, who believes that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and who believes in the biblical sanctification process that God calls us to, putting off sin, being renewed in the spirit of our minds, and putting on holiness, is something that you better get ready to pay the price for. The good news is, is that walking with Christ is better than walking with the devil. The good news is that pursuing obedience to Christ is better than being enslaved to the sins of the world. The good news is, is that loving Jesus and serving others is better than worshiping yourself and fighting with God's people. God's called us to be separate, to be different to grow and to be Christians. Like verse 26 says, we are to identify with Christ. And that's a biblical statement. 
the, not the Christ of someone's own making. Well, I think Jesus is. Well, I think Jesus would. No, no, no. Who is the Jesus of the Bible? What has he said? Are we walking in those footsteps? So planning a church is all about effective evangelism, dynamic discipleship, and number three, it's all about a mercy ministry. Check this out, verses 27 and 28. Your next blank says, the practical prophecy of Agabus. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there, there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. When it says prophets came down, they are actually heading north from Jerusalem to Antioch, but from a higher elevation to a lower elevation. The prophets would come as sent by the Jerusalem church, and we know that prophecy is one of the gifts of the New Testament believer in the early church. The word of knowledge, the gift of tongues, and the gift of prophecy were all miraculous, revelatory gifts that served in the development of the early church these gifts were essential in giving authenticity both to the messenger and the message of the gospel. And I believe that at the end of the canon, that would be the end of the scripture, the writing of the book of Revelation in 95 AD by John on the Isle of Patmos, I believe that that is the point where these gifts have now ceased. Now we have all the revelation of God that he wants us to have today in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10 discusses the passing away at some point of these miraculous sign gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So at some point, they're going to pass away. Your view on that may vary from the end of the scripture to the maturity of the church all the way to Christ's second coming. But here in the book of Acts, just back to what we're at here, we're just gonna enjoy the beauty of the fact this gift is still fully being exercised and rightly so. The gifts of knowledge and the gifts of tongues and prophecy were alive and well. And so one of these New Testament prophets by the name of Agabus came from Jerusalem to Antioch and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the whole world. The prophecy of Agabus came to pass in the reign of Claudius. The years of 45 and 46 AD saw a great famine in Israel. Several ancient writers, including Josephus, attest to this fact. Now I say that it was a practical prophecy because it isn't focused so much on theology or preaching truth from God's word, but it was focused on helping Christians with an upcoming physical hardship. God cared about his people and he wanted them to be warned about an upcoming famine. So what's the result of this? Verse 29, the selfless generosity of believers. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. The disciples here would be a reference to those new believers there in Antioch who were following the teaching of Saul and Barnabas and who indeed were now disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they decided, look what they did, verse 29, they took up a special offering and they wanted to send it to the believers in Judea, no doubt also in Jerusalem. And so everyone did according to his ability. Everyone, according to his ability, gave they sent relief to Jerusalem. You know what the sad thing about the church is today? That's that about the 80-20 principle, that 80% of the people give hardly anything. 20% of the people give almost everything. That's true oftentimes in churches where it's referring to giving or serving, or contributing in any way. It's like 20% of the people, that's your real core. They carry the brunt of the work that goes forth in a church financially and in giving of their time. 80% of the people give next to nothing. You know what the stat is in our church? Oh, it's getting quiet. <laughs> the stat in our church is the 80-20 principle. You would think in a church like ours, everybody would be giving graciously, 
sacrificially, joyfully unto the Lord because we are a Bible church. We stand on the word of God. We understand what the scripture teaches. And yet I've been told from those who run and look at statistics in our own church, if you want to talk to him, he's sitting over that area, over in this area over here, that the same principle holds true here. Why is that? I wonder. How could we, if we love the gospel so much, Again, I'm not talking to you if you're part of the 20, all right? If you're part of the 20, you can just sit back and be like, man, God is good. I love my pastor. (laughs) He is such a good preacher. (laughs) If you're part of the 80, this is where you perk up and be like, what is he talking about? Now, look, it's between you and the Lord. I don't know who you are, what you give. You know that. I have no idea. I mean, I could guess, but I really have no idea. I have no idea. So the point is, I just like the emphasis here. I love the emphasis of verse 29, uh, so the disciples turned that everyone according to his ability. Now, I I get it. A a lot of us are in debt, right? We have a mortgage payment. You pay rent, car debt, school debt, medical debt, credit credit card debt. (laughs) I mean, we all struggle, right? We understand. It's hard. Come on. We live in California. It is hard to make it on one family income. It's hard to make it on a two family income. If you have no income, you're in the better shape because the government's gonna bail you out. (laughs) I gotta get back to my notes. What am I doing up here? (laughs) All all I'm trying to say is, (laughs) Todd, you wanna just come out and take over for him? You're good, all right. All, All I'm trying to say is that everyone did according to what they could do. Is that you this morning? Everyone did according to what they can do. Can I just say this one statement? If you are in debt, as we understand that's challenging and there's times every family struggles with that, you should still be doing something. That's what I'm trying to say. Even if you're in debt, you still do something to the glory of God in a way that would be between you and him. I don't know what that is, but between you and him. I just love the emphasis though that these people heard about what was going on. And our church, by the way, in general, you guys are very generous. We hear about the the challenge in the Ukraine. You guys gave about $5,000 like this that we sent to two relief groups of two of our missionaries who are on the borders of Ukraine. Praise God for that. So this is just a reminder that we can excel still more, that we could see what it is that God's called us to. God's called us to be a beautiful picture, everyone doing whatever we can. Some have more ability, some have less ability. It depends on where you are, but as you're able, this is just a beautiful picture back in the text here, a beautiful picture of selfless generosity. And think about it. Think about this. The famine, it says it's going to be worldwide. That means it's going to affect Antioch too. But for some reason, Antioch says, hey, you know what? We got to bless those believers down in Judea. We want to make sure we take care of them. The fellow believers in Jerusalem, we want to make sure they're well cared for. Possibly this could be because of a strong economy in Antioch that these believers had more means to make such a gift. Possibly it was just because they were so thankful to the Jerusalem brothers for sending them Barnabas to encourage them. Maybe it was just because they're so thankful to the Lord for saving them out of their sin that this was a simple way to put their newfound faith into practice. Remember, the Jerusalem church had modeled this same kind of selfless generosity earlier in Acts 4, 34 and 35, where it says, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So Jerusalem has modeled this. Antioch has modeled this. We know that the principles of giving in the New Testament are primarily found in that passage that Josh read this morning out of 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. Actually, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 both together give biblical principles on giving. But I love that passage that he read to us this morning in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one, that's you, that's me, that's each individual in this room. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart. And then what's the attitude we're to give in? Not reluctantly 
are under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Can I ask you how you're doing with selfless giving unto the Lord and unto others? What does this look like in your life? Is it hard for you to give or do you consider it a blessing? Verse 30, and we're done. The loving distribution to the Jerusalem church, and they did so. Notice they were encouraged to do what they could do to help out, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, I love the fact that this is a church plant, but they're acting pretty mature. They're like, you know what? We're ready to give back. I know we're just a church plant. We just came to Christ. We're living in a dark culture. Antioch might have been thinking, but we're going to put it into practice and start giving to others. And so they sent money by the elders or by Barnabas and Saul to the elders, presumably there in Jerusalem in Judea. It is significant that they gave the gift to the elders. Evidently, the elders in Jerusalem had ultimate oversight over all aspects of the ministry. This is the first mention of elders in connection with the local church. The idea of elders was familiar to the Jews since there was elders in the synagogue. No information is given as to how these men in the Jerusalem became elders in this Jerusalem church. In the Gentile churches, elders were appointed by apostles or their representatives. And we see this in Acts 14.23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. We see a similar thing in Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writes to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The course of the, the, uh, the qualifications of elders are spelled out clearly in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 6 through 9. I also think that we see the progression from apostles to elders. So what I'm saying is you see apostles, 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 and now you're going to start saying, oh, elders, elders, elders throughout the rest of the New Testament. Now, Paul and Peter are still going strong here, but the idea is that you're going to see that there's that transition even mentioned in Ephesians 4, 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, those are the initial offices, and now it moves to the evangelist, the shepherds, and teachers. So the word shepherd is another word for elder, poimain, one of the three words that we get our idea, the concept of a pastor, an elder, this office that God's called in order that they would equip the saints for their work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. So we just see a little bit of progression here in ecclesiology from apostleship to eldership. Let's just look quickly at these take-home things. A couple of nuggets to take away. Number one, take-home section there. Do you have a narrow scope or a broad scope in your evangelism? Just think about it this week. Are you verse 19 or are you verse 20? Do you only go out and talk to only the people who are like you? Or do you go out and say, you know what? This week, I want to have a wide scope. This week, I'm going to be more prone to open my eyes and my ears to people who aren't like me in order to help share the gospel. Are you narrow or are you broad in the scope of your evangelism? Number two, how are we growing as a church in the area of dynamic discipleship? Such a key factor to what God's called us to be as a church. It starts with the teaching and the preaching. And we do that publicly and from house to house or person to person. And with that also comes encouragement. All the stuff that we looked at on encouraging one another and coming alongside each other and not just cramming the truth home, but giving a lot of heart, love, and patience in how you do that. And then number three, are you personally involved in the joy of mercy ministry? What does that look like in your life? What does that look like for us as a church? Are we a church who has robust Mercy ministries to families and to missions and to parts of our community. Well, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, after I close in prayer and we have one final song, a few people are going to be standing by that back door. And we just would be amiss not to say if you're here this morning and somehow the idea of becoming a believer by faith and turning from your sin and turning to him has convicted you, encouraged you calls you to think. We would want you this morning to know that you could become a Christian this very day. It's God's sovereign work in your heart through the gospel, but it's you responding to his call through his word 
that you would believe in the Lord Jesus and turn to him with all of your heart. Or if you're here this morning and you need some encouragement or you need some prayer for any reason, again, after the last song, a few people by that back door, we'd love to minister to you in any way that we can this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be back in your word, just to hear just a whole bunch of different stuff, really, from this church plan and acts all the way from evangelism to preaching and discipleship to giving. It's just amazing to see how how you started that, that, that powerful church in Antioch that was responsible for reaching beyond the Jewish community, community into the Gentile world. And we just want to learn what we can from it, Lord, so we can live that out here at Placerita. Lord, all of us have areas to grow. All of us need encouragement. All of us want to grow in our joy in giving. And so I pray that you would just have your way in our hearts, God. May we just confess any sins that we need to, that we've been convicted about this morning. May we lean into what it means to walk in faith and in the power of the Spirit, that we would truly believe in you with all of our hearts and to turn to you for our hope and our help, for our joy, and that you would put us to work in your service. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.